when I first got into it and I decided to be serious, the director of all of rowing at adaptive side looked at me and just like looked at my body size and was judged, judged me on my body builds of, well, you don't have what it, first of all, how dare she say, like, I don't have what it takes to be an elite athlete, but then also my body size and my body, of course, I'm smaller builds, but I can change that. And then she has no idea that that was like that last coal and that's that through through in the fire pit that like really just made my fire within me like roar because my whole entire life I was told like what I can and can't do. My guest today is Oksana Masters. Born with birth defects from the Chernobyl disaster in the 1980s, Oksana lived in three different orphanages in Ukraine until the age of seven. Over the course of her childhood, she endured multiple surgeries, including getting both of her legs amputated. At the age of 13, she discovered rowing and brought home her first of 17 Paralympic medals in four different sports. In 2018, she won her first gold medal at the Winter Paralympic Games, all while she had a broken elbow. Oksana not only manages the many pressures of being an elite-level athlete, but also the physical and emotional journey of living without her legs. As she mentions, it's a struggle every day. She is no doubt someone who believes there's no limits to her abilities and has pushed the boundaries to what is possible. My full conversation with Oksana right after this quick break. Oksana Masters, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you, Alex, for having me. So we're going to start way back at the beginning. You were born with birth defects due to utero radiation uh, from the Chernobyl disaster. And then you spent your childhood in three different orphanages, I believe. Can you just share, obviously it was very early in your life, but from your own memory, what that experience was like for you, or even as you reflect on it today? Yeah. So I don't remember the first two orphanages that well. I have weird, weird smells and like sounds that I'll remember. They'll bring me back to a memory, but it's the last orphanage when I was considered an adult. So you move into the adult orphanages where you go from five to 16. And that's the one, the last year from six to seven is what I remember the most so vividly, like what I feel like on my body and the smells and just clear pictures when I close my eyes. And it was, I mean, exactly what you might think the word orphanage sounds like. It's obviously not the ideal place or way for any child to grow up, especially small little village that I was living in. And I guess in some weird way, like that's where I learned how to gain strength and be resilient when, because we didn't have food. So I was starving to death when I was adopted, wasn't given a lot of chance to live a long life after I came to America. There was no food in the orphanage? There was some. So my orphanage was combined. It was a government-ran one. So there's small local ones, and then there's a government-run. And they called them internauts. And it was like a boarding school, but not the boarding school like in the UK that people think is very, (laughs) you send your kids there. But so it's like, it was a boarding school where people within that village, if they didn't have resources, they would pay a small amount and those kids would go and live there and they would get like room, food, education. On a separate wing of that building was an actual orphanage. And that was through the government. And that's where we didn't have the food or the resources for any medical stuff or 
like we, I had clothes that was so big that you just like put on from other kids' clothes when they leave or if they pass away. It was, yeah, no food. I think I love salt because we had really salty broth. I don't know what they did, but I, that must have been what they flavored and that was the food. So I was starving to death because of that. There was um, a lot of different types of abuse that was going on. And I think that was the hardest thing that I struggled because I didn't know it was abuse as a little kid besides just pain, which was hard to comprehend. And it wasn't until I came to America that I really understood the magnitude of what was wrong that I experienced and what was my normal at that time. And what has been just like the process over the course of your life of just unpacking kind of all of this, you know, trauma in the first 10 years of your life, then I would say, you know, you'd wish on any human being in their entire life. Like, what has been your process for unpacking these things? And do you have an ability to kind of reflect on these experiences today in an open way where it can be so easy to just completely close them off given how shitty of situations they were? There's no easy way to close that off. It's one of those things that like, it's wild because there's a sound or a smell, like I was mentioning before, and it will just take me instantly back to that day. And it's physically draining to remind yourself and go through the process of, I'm not there, this is just a memory, it triggered, but it's my body's deep-rooted neurological response and how deep it is that it was every day for like the first seven and a half years. You're never going to forget that. Your body's never going to forget that, but you learn how to cope with it. And for me, that was sports and that before sports I was just active I love to climb trees I was a monkey my mom called me a spider monkey and I was I love to be active I didn't know I was doing it in a different way at that time when I had my legs it was hurting but there's just I've always loved this um just this feeling when your body is moving through space and you're doing something and you have that control of it and processing all that trauma and that early experience and it wasn't all trauma I had really good experiences too and processing how the good and the bad um, for me that was through sports and through writing this book too and honestly Alex I realized oh my gosh there's a lot I have not worked through too and it's just gonna be that everyday process but sports is that outlet for me sweat it out (laughs) and it's funny you mentioned like the book writing process because you know, when I think about writing a book, it, as someone who's a very um, has trouble sitting down and doing something for 15 minutes, thinking about <laughs> writing an entire book seems like like a Herculean task. But friends of mine who have written books, you know, obviously they they talk about the ability to tell a story and provide that story to the world and add value to people. But inevitably, what ends up happening is kind of what you just mentioned, which is there's actually so much exploration that happens of yourself as you're writing a book because it's a force function to do it and you end up inevitably realizing there are things you haven't explored for the past several decades of your life. Yeah, I'm really, really lucky because I had an amazing ghostwriter was Cassidy Randall for this book and my contributor and she did an amazing job. I basically was, I felt like I was talking to my best friend and I was literally, I was like, talking and these memories out of nowhere would come and these tears are coming. And I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from. I'm so sorry. And she took the words I was saying and she took those emotions and turned them into art. So some, well, because what I like, it was something that I really didn't like a lot about my story, 
was that it was always viewed as pity. It was very viewed as I feel bad for you and oh my gosh, it's so traumatic and bless your heart, you got through it. And um, that's before the amputation stuff. I wanted to shine a light on that. You can come from those really messy experiences that are beyond your control because I didn't realize they were beyond my control. I thought I deserved every part of everything that I experienced. And during that process of writing, like, like you said to your friends too, like it was very therapeutic and I had to, in so many aspects, I had to go through and pretend like I'm reading about my friend because it is so different when you, you dream the stuff and then when you put words out there and you speak it, and then when you see the words and you're writing them and you're reading it, it just makes you realize and made me realize, oh my gosh, this was my life. I cannot believe it. And then it helps me really realize like where I came from and how lucky I was to get out of that. It's wild. There's something really interesting you just said, and I just would be interested to hear kind of what you meant by it, which is, you know, over time you learn there are things outside of your control, but earlier on you, these were, th- what happened to you are things that you, your perception was you deserved. What, what does that exactly mean to you? Like, what does that mean in context? Okay. Well, first of all, I was a troublemaker. I just <laughs> didn't know when to stop. So I, a lot of things I brought on myself when I knew, because as a kid, bad attention, even if that would mean really bad punishment would be at least some form of attention. And you'd, somebody would see that you're actually there and you're alive and when I came to America is where I realized like, well, I must've been a really, really bad girl, especially because I was told that for two years when my mom was trying to adopt me by the director of the orphanage there. And he said, this is why your mom's not coming for these years because you're a bad girl and she sees it. And then you just, when it's just you in an orphanage trying to fight to survive, I started to realize like, I must be doing, I'm, I deserve it. I was bad. I did something bad. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe it's because I look different and I'm smaller or I didn't know. It just, it's one of those things that you really, honestly, Alex, I don't think I can put into words of why I thought I deserved it. And then it was happening more to me, especially when I lost my friend than some other people. So I realized well, the only way bad things happen if you do bad but then I didn't learn because I still kept climbing the bookshelves and did things in the orphanage when they told me not to. And It's interesting. I feel like you just being a kid that, you know, seems like had a lot of energy and got into trouble from time to time, you conflated those experiences or those actions you took in life as like the justification for bad things that happened to you when obviously one didn't necessarily have to do with the other in all aspects of life. Yeah. Totally. You alluded to the two years that your mom spent to adopt you. Just talk for a second, especially for people who don't even know how the adoption process works. Like, what were some of the hurdles that she had to go through to ultimately adopt you after two years? So, and this is the this is the wildest thing. Like, I I've learned. My mom shared her experience with me when you we were talking, but reading her side and going through the editing process in this book, I learned so much about my mom's process that I had no idea. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can handle that or do that. And What's an example of that? Fight through that. Well, so like my mom adopted me in 1997. She adopted me a single parent. And at that time, adopting from Eastern European orphanages, 
you can't adopt as a single parent. And so she had to take all these psychiatric tests of, well, what's wrong with you because you're not married? Why don't you have a man? We need a father's name to put down here. And she was put through so much more on that end than a family that would go and adopt. And the paperwork, there was so much like, and not to get all political with what's happening now, but a lot of the paperwork would get translated in Russian, but then because I was in Western Ukraine, they wouldn't even look at it. They rejected it all and then would only look at it if it's in Ukrainian because they are two different languages. And just timelines and waiting. And the biggest thing that was hard for my mom is Ukraine put a moratorium on the, which is a ban on all foreign adoptions. And she didn't know when that ban was going to be lifted. I was very, I, I joke about how I'm like, Oh, my mom got me from the bargain cave because I was like disabled and half off and I was old. And it's like one of those, like, it's okay to joke about, like, you got to laugh at it sometimes. And it turned out to be really more expensive than she expected because like all the paperwork was sent in and then the ban happened and everything retired or expired. So then to redo everything all over again. And, you know, they're not whole process too. They're just trying to tell her to go to Russia. You can get a baby within a month. And, you know, my mom could not be any more different from me. We could not be any opposites. <laughs> she loves to read. She loves, she's like a homebody and I want to be active. I want to feel the wind through my hair. But I learned grit and resiliency and not giving up through her and the process yeah. that she never gave up on me. Well, I feel like it shines such um, an important light, first of all, on just the sacrifice that she had to go through that sometimes people don't necessarily appreciate adopting parents will go through. And especially in her case, like you said, as a single mother, like I'm sure there was so much emotional challenge she had to go through because, you know, she was basically throughout the process being called out for being a single mother and saying like, in in a way, whether it was said directly or not, like what's wrong with you? So I can well, imagine. Well, they basically did. The courts basically like did do that. And then the hardest thing, like one of the, not the hardest thing, but like they literally, <laughs> they forced her to put a father's name down on the paperwork and she put down some random person and then she's like looking back she's like I should have put like I don't know <laughs> some famous George Clooney yeah. or somebody famous yeah, yeah. on that that's hilarious and I think the other thing is to your point and we'll talk more about your mom but like I think there's something so kind of beautiful in the, the way that you just laid out your I would say very obvious differences as people like obvious in kind of the external behaviors you put out into the world of like, you're super active, you like being outside, like she likes reading, she's a homebody. But at the end of the day, like the thing that actually matters is the mutual values that you guys share. And it sounds like the values that she taught you through her own behaviors, whether or not she was kind of an outdoor person or an indoor person. I feel like that's such a beautiful thing. And that's the thing is like, you can, you don't have to walk each other's shoes and and like, your interests can be so different, but that doesn't mean you can't learn from it and learn how to apply it to make you better person or help you in what I'm doing in my interests and like whether it's sports. And I, I think about it all the time and I'm like, I want to give up. I want to get like, I don't know, I, this is literally impossible, but my mom lived through the impossible. And she, when she was being told to give up, she didn't give up. When she questioned it, she never gave up. And she's um, one of those people that like, she doesn't have to say the words for me to learn it. It's just 
you see it through how she lives her life and how she approaches everything and obstacles. Even when I came to America and we didn't speak each other's languages and how she was just so kind and learned body language. And- yeah. It sounds like she's just like an incredible teacher through action. Do you remember the first time that you met her? Like, do you remember that experience? Yeah. <laughs> what, what was it like? Um, so it was in the middle of the night and I was throwing a hissy fit down the hallway because they told me like my mom was going to come before we went to bed, but then travel, of course, delayed her arrival. And they said that we will wake you up when she, when she comes. And I didn't want to go to bed because I thought if I go to bed, then she's not going to be there. And it was going to be a dream. And also that's what I heard for two years. And middle of the night, it was where a lot of kids were gone. So it was just the seven of us. So we were downstairs in the big room where we all slept in the same room. And I remember like hearing sounds and it was dark. And then I just see this like dark shadowy figure, which if it was my mom's coat with the fur around it, cause it was really, really cold. And she's like, I feel pressure on the bed. And she's like, Oksana, do you know who this is? Obviously they're speaking in Ukrainian to me. And I'm, first thing I say is I look at her and say, I know you, you're my mom. Instantly, I claimed her and told her, well, you're my mom, so therefore you are not going to leave me. And then she gave me this stuffed animal that her mom actually had made for all of her kids to give to their own kids one day. Oh, wow. That's so special. Do you still have the stuffed animal? I do. It's like a little elephant, not Dumbo, but like an elephant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. It's at my mom's house because I'm a I'm a klutz and I destroy everything I touch. So if I want that thing to be preserved in one piece, it's staying at my mom's house until. <laughs> Seems like a very wise decision. Um, <laughs> why do you think your mom was so incredibly determined to adopt you when, like you mentioned, it was an excruciating process? It took two years. There was the moratorium in Ukraine. She was challenged for being a, a single mother. She was told that she could adopt someone in a month from Russia. Like all of these things to basically say, here's your way out. Here's a faster option, a less emotionally provoking option. Why did she stick with it? I have no idea. And I think she questioned <laughs> it when I when she got me and we got home in our first month in America. And she's like, oh my gosh, this is what I get for adopting an opinionated seven, almost eight-year-old. But I have, I have no idea because... I wouldn't want to put up with me. I don't like to be by myself in a room because I'm a lot. But I think my mom, so she knew she always wanted kids. She said that, like she loved cheaper by the dozen and she read all these books and they had these huge families and her dad, my grandpa came from a big family and she just wanted, it's kind of crazy because like she, she never really thought about like the relationship side of like having a husband and having like that family. She just wanted kids. And when I was in Ukraine, like, all I wanted was a mom. I never really thought, talked about or dreamed about a dad. I mean, I just really, really wanted a mom. That's the one thing I bonded to. And both of our answers were in a very long, different timeline were finally answered in, in the outer space universe timeline than what we wanted. But I think my mom just also why she never gave up because what I learned through writing the hard parts is her story of what she persevered in as a female getting a PhD and education and like that stuff that a lot of women were not respected for and were not really treated equally. And so she was constantly proving herself in the academic world as an independent female, as a single woman. Well, well, it also, it also, you know, I think, um, one of the values that you mentioned as you described her was kind of like this 
grit and resilience. I mean, I feel like that is exhibited in just kind of the process also that she went through is it almost feels like in some ways there there was no other option for her. She had a goal in mind. She had something she had visualized for so long. And so she wasn't going to give up on that happening after she had committed to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like one of the biggest people that didn't believe she should do it. And one of the hardest things was her own dad. My grandpa like said, like, you can't like, how are you going to do this on your own? And that stigma that was put on single parents of, and then raising and adopting and just the financial side and the disability side of medical needs and stuff. And so like she, that just shows the strength of her heart and her soul and just the sheer determination when your own parents tell you, your dad tells you like, well, why are you doing that? You can't even afford yourself and you can't provide for yourself. Why would you do this? Bring the child and adopt this. And she's just, yeah. I mean, there's really, it's hard when people say like, describe your mom because it's like one of those things you just, you feel and you see, even though we fight like cats and dogs because we are mother and daughter, we do have that mother-daughter relationship. We are close, but we do also, we fight, but like, she is my best friend. She is everything. She's my lessons. She's my she's my reason why for everything. And it's just something that you have to experience and don't really have words for her because they don't exist yet. We're going to take a quick break here. But when we come back, we'll hear about Oksana's life after she was adopted by her mother and the story of getting both her legs amputated. And then we get into how she got into sports and began competing at the highest level. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. And we're back. Before the break, we heard about Oksana's troubling experience as an orphan and the many obstacles her adoptive mother had to go through in order to bring Oksana to the U.S. As Oksana reveals, growing up in America had its own set of challenges. It wasn't until she discovered rowing that she had found her passion in life. I want to push this story forward and obviously one, let's call it really special moment, but also great challenge in both your life and her life was the adoption process. And then I would say... After that came another great challenge, which was after she was finally able to adopt you and bring you to Buffalo, she was kind of your support for multiple operations, which included getting both of your legs amputated. Talk about in just the the months and years after that, kind of what your process was for overcoming the physical challenges, but as importantly, how you navigated it emotionally given you know, it's such a big part of your identity and sense of independence in life. Like, how did you work through these things? Well, I didn't have a, like a typical kid, just like sometimes really angry and just very mad at the world. But the first surgery, my mom made the choice for me to amputate my first leg. And she waited till I was home for a year. So I bonded with her and I knew what a mom was. I felt home in this 
learn the language so that way I don't wake up and just like, oh my God, where's my legs? I can't speak English and my legs are gone. Um, she thought that would be kind of cruel to do to me, <laughs> which was a great call on her part. And so she made that choice. And honestly, that first transition from that amputation, I don't know if it's because I was nine and kids are just so resilient when things like that happen. I just moved forward so fast. And then it was also, it needed to be done. I was able to be, I had more independence because of it and the prosthetic it would provide me. It was the second amputation where it was, I was given an option, but not really an option. I was given a timeline of, hey, this is your option of when you want to get this done, but here's your two-week window of when we need to do what kind of thing. Um, you got to love those. Oh, hey, it's up to you, but <laughs> yeah. you know, here's the date. <laughs> yeah. that. And you're like, okay. Yeah, cool. no real option. Yeah. <laughs> And the second one is where it was really, really hard. And by that, before the second amputation, I already, we moved from Buffalo, New York to Louisville, Kentucky. And of course I resented my mom because she took me from home and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is in Kentucky? Does that mean I had to listen to country music, which I like now, <laughs> but, <laughs> and I found sport of rowing at the Louisville Adapter Rowing Club there. That was kind of where I kind of had the first start at processing the first amputation. And then when I got the news that I would have to make the decision for my second one, I went back to rowing on that dock and just processed it all there. And finally, like, you know, the pain, it, was, it just got to a point where it was unbearable and I had to have it for that freedom independence. So I decided to have it amputated and um, it was not a smooth transition. It was really, really challenging. And that's the one that I physically and emotionally was just really angry about. And I don't know where I would honestly be or how I would have that process to mentally process everything if I didn't get on that water in the boat and have that to look forward to. Why do you think, why was it that the second, second amputation was so much harder? Was it a function of age and more kind of awareness of what this meant? Was it because of the challenges that you experienced where you felt like you were misled and there were different complications with this process? Was it all of them? Like, how would you sum up why it was harder? Well, I guess the biggest reason why it was harder is what, I mean, my, my first amputation, so I was in, like, my amputations are both above the knee. The left one, which is the first one when I was nine, within a month after that amputation, I was up and walking in a prosthetic leg. But I also knew what that meant. So they gave me an option of, you know, amputate, we were talking about the amputation process. They promised me when I made a choice, like, okay, I'm ready to have my leg amputated. I was 14 at that time. Okay, so as a female, as a girl, a 14-year-old girl, if you have a bad hair day or a pimple, it is the end of the world. <laughs> like, imagine if you have another pylon and metal sticking out of your leg. That's just going to be not yeah, cute totally. for the clothes and shoes at all. And that's where my mind was going. I'm a girl after all. I love fashion. So, and I told them like, okay, I'm ready to amputate my leg under one condition. And that is if it's below the knee, because a lot of people don't realize for every joint you're missing, it's entirely different. So I knew what I was missing as an above knee amputee. I was missing a knee and a foot. So it was going to, I was already walking different and they promised me a deep below the knee. I wake up after the surgery and it is amputated. I try to get up and it's amputated above the knee and I fall back because I don't have that leverage below the knee. And that's where I just, I lost it and thought my life was over. I've never really seen an amputee before. 
I had all these amputations except one and she was a below the knee amputee. And of course you can do all these things because you have your knee that you're dependent on. They planned for it to be below the knee. It changed. It led me to be in the hospital for six plus months, stuck to a bed for a wound back. That's my Ukrainian me. The W's and the V's still come out. <laughs> and as and then I'm 14. So I'm like not seeing my friends now. I'm not going to school. And now I, in my mind, my life's over. I have literally no legs above the knee. And I've never seen anyone that looks like me to walk. On top of that, the wrong leg was numbed. So I was in an excruciating amount of pain. And it was just a lot of anger. And that's where the anger for me kind of started building and resentment. And then on top of all that, it was around the same times that my memories from Ukraine were coming back that I suppressed and I lied to my mom and said, nothing happened. I had a great experience and all the stuff. And it was just uh, that volcano and that pressure. And then that second amputation was that one that just took the lid off. What was your relationship with your mom after that surgery? Like, was your anger directed at the doctors? Was it also directed at her? How did she support you during that period of time? No, it was not directed at my mom. I I feel so bad because my mom feels guilty for putting me in that position, but she didn't put me in that position. It was just bad luck in being around one too many power plants when I was in my mom's birth birth mom's stomach. And I feel bad that she feels guilty for it. Like she feels responsible. And I think that's just a mother's going to always feel that way. I felt angry at just the world. And I felt angry at the hospital and the doctors. And I felt lied and betrayed too. And that's exactly how I viewed it as. And then I fell into this depression and eating disorder and all this stuff happened and through the hospital because that's the one thing you can control about my myself. And there's not one day where I blamed my mom at all. Yeah. But that thought never even came through my mind. How long did it take you to make peace with what had happened? Oh, Alex, honestly, I'm still working on it. Yeah. Because it's frustrating. I If I was, if it happened... I, I know my my left leg. I'm fine. Whatever. It's the second one where it's frustrating. I'm at, I'm somewhat at peace, but then there's days and moments where I'm just like, ah, I want that perfect knee pop kiss. Like you know, when a girl, if you kiss someone, you just pop your knee up, and you, I could <laughs> yeah. do that if yeah. I was below yeah, the yeah, knee, yeah. and just those small things, or the different types of like high heel shoes, and totally. just just like the small things like that that well, make also, you realize. It, it's um, I think also just like what you kind of call attention to that like, you know, that I've never thought about, I'm sure a lot of people haven't, is just like these very like small changes that have such an outsized impact on not only just like your ability from a movement perspective, but also what those movements signify in terms of your identity as a woman. Yeah, absolutely. And then that is all happening as a 14-year-old girl. So I'm not even 16 yet where I get all like, (laughs) you think, and you think you have the whole world figured out and you realize, oh my gosh, there's nothing left for me. No one's going to ever want to love me. Like why I wouldn't want to, I don't love myself when I look in the mirror. That was like also just, it it took a long process and I still am processing through it all. Now I'm at the point where I can kind of smile about it and have fun with it. And I just say like, I have best of both worlds because I can downsize to four feet Thank God. And I know I'm four feet because that is the minimum height you have to be for a water slide to go down. Because <laughs> I got into argument with that person and they tried to tell that. me you're too short. 
after I crawled up all the stairs and I'm sort of my taller yeah, leg. Yeah, and you're like, I'm there's like, no shot I'm going back down the stairs. Yeah, no. <laughs> I sort of saw my taller leg and I'm like, I'm four feet, see? Like, yeah. And yeah, I won that argument. I feel like, at least from everything you're saying, it makes, it seems like you're in a really a really great place, relatively speaking, in the sense that you you can have this lightness around just the context of your life that allows you to joke about it, but also makes complete sense that all of this shit that you've been through, that it probably takes a lifetime to to work through. And that's just a function of your of your experience. Yeah. And I think this is so like I wrote also the hard parts in the memoir because you know, you blame yourself and you have all these moments that like just can either have this negative moment and you choose to live in it forever in that negative dark hole of why me or you find these outlets that are healthy that you can process it where you don't have to talk about it. You find your way to process it. And, you know, it's not it's not one of those things you work through and it's a check mark off next. I'm, it's never gonna affect me ever again. It think it's, there's always a memory. Like we're human, we're gonna have these bad days. Whether they're like these tra- trauma that brings it up, a smell or the a job or relationships, whatever it is, like it, it's not a check mark that you just, you, ov- you overcome it and you're done. And that's okay. I think, cause a lot of people in the way it's like really perceived is like, you work through it, it's done next yeah, and then gone. what happens in 20 years from now when all of a sudden you're like why am I crying why am I freaking out and you realize it's because of this like it's and I wanted to shine a light on that like it's okay like it's totally. not about being check mark onto the next life's gonna get better it is gonna get better but like these memories you can use these type of things in a positive way yeah and I think it you know it's just about also developing tools that allow you to face these things in a productive way where you don't put a pressure on yourself, you don't have expectations, but it allows you to still live the life you want to live, even if certain days are shitty and other days are great. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it was really important to like kind of set the table of our conversation by talking through just like what your childhood and young adult experience was like. And I want to talk about sports now because obviously it's been such an important piece of your life. Can you talk about after your second amputation and after the six months of being in the hospital, how long did it take for you to get back into being able to participate in sports? And also, how long did it take for you to like really get serious about sports? Like where you took it to the next level that you know, you're know you at today? That transition after the amputation from the hospital happened fast because I there was a tree that was moving out of the window. And that's, I'm a very like philosophical and very like live my life through metaphors. And I'm like, that I'm going to be that tree. Like you're going to be solid, but you're going to be the leaves and the twigs, everything are going to be moving. And then when I'm outside and I can actually move my body, I'm never going to stop and sit still. When I think I really got serious with it. So I started running when I was 13, but it really wasn't until I was 17 ish around that time where Bobby and Randy, who were the Randy was director of the program there. And Bobby was the coach said, hey, you have a future in the Paralympics. And I'm like, what the heck is a Paralympics? Like, I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know how to, I, I did that cliche that everyone does that drives me insane. They call it Paralympics and it's not Paralympics, it's Paralympics. <laughs> and yeah. then there's the Olympics. <laughs> um, and so I had to Google it and figure out what it was. I'm also very competitive by nature. Like my mom learned this right away when we tried to play goldfish and I 
did not there do was well. only one winner of the game <laughs> one winner there was yeah. one time where i cheated to let her win because i'm like oh my mom can't win this is bad <laughs> i couldn't handle it when i was cheating to let her win i couldn't handle that that loss <laughs> and i'm also banned from playing risk also because i get very oh, passionate gosh. when i compete and play games and I loved the idea of representing something bigger than yourself and wearing red, white, and blue. Once I gave them the word, I'm serious. It was about a yes, long answer to answer your question. How long did it take? About like four years after that, really. And then so I tried like set my sights on 2008 Paralympics. Did not make that at all. Sometimes it's so cliche. It's like you have to lose something to really realize how much it means and how much you really want something. But that's exactly what happened. That's the moment when I didn't make that team and set that goal is when I realized I actually want this. This isn't just like a goal and check it off. Like I want to do it and I want to do it well. You won your first gold medal in 2018, right? First Paralympic gold. Para- yeah, four first years. Para- yeah. Yeah. Four years after starting. So I competed in London. Rio, Sochi, and it was my fourth Paralympic Games that I yeah. finally won it. There's an excerpt from your memoir where you say, the media love to show airbrushed, buttoned up versions of the people we put on pedestals. What they often fail to capture is the rough road barricaded and setbacks along the way, the hard parts that can drive a will to succeed. Can you just talk a little bit about some of the obstacles and pressures and barricades that you encountered along this pretty arduous journey to ultimately win gold? Oh, that just drives me crazy because media does. They shine the light and they see you in the moment that you've been working for for such a long time. And then it's like perceived as like, oh, it finally happened the first time you try it. When I first got into it and I decided to be serious, the director of all of rowing for adaptive side looked at me and just like looked at my body size and was judged, judged me on my body builds of, well, you don't have what it, first of all, how dare she say, like, I don't have what it takes to be an elite athlete, but then also my body size and my body, of course, I'm smaller builds, but I can change that. And then she has no idea that that was like that last hole and that's that threw, threw in the fire pit that like really just made my fire within me like roar because my whole entire life, I was told like what I can and can't do and everyone's perceptions of me. And that was, I think the hardest thing is when someone told you, well, you can never make it. It's unrealistic. And then financially, a lot of people don't realize right before Sochi 2014 games of the winter, I misjudged my money. My mom was helping me a lot. She was misjudged it. I ended up sleeping out of my car. And for like right before we leave for Sochi, which actually worked out great because I ended up losing weight because of it, because I couldn't eat that much. So then I was lighter to climb up the hills and then I ended up getting two medals that were not expected. So I guess it worked out somehow. But like that stuff that, and the start line, I remember like sleeping on my car, going to pick up a teammate to go drive to train. And then little do they know, I don't even have a place to sleep. And I kept it all within myself because it's embarrassing to train for something and everyone thinks you're representing Team USA and you're in your car sleeping and equipment side of things. Everything was financially like on our own. We didn't have the resources. And and then when that moment, that gold medal happened, of course, I'm a klutz and I had a catastrophic injury that <laughs> almost ruined my whole um, 
like games for 2018. And then I had an incredible team around me there to help me get that gold. Why was it worth it to you to sleep in your car? Like when you make really, uh, I would say, difficult decisions in life like that, right? Like you chose to sleep in your car to go to competition, even though maybe at times you felt embarrassed by it because you're representing Team USA, but you were living out of a car. Like why was it worth it? Well, I'm a person that I believe like when I start something, I want to finish it through. I don't care what place it is. I'm going to see where I am in every effort that I put in. I don't believe in just quitting just because one setback or one car. And I don't know if it's because of my experience in the orphanage, but in that moment, I was like, okay, I've been here before. I was a comfortable place for me because I, as a kid, learned how to make food in one bite last two hours long. And it was worth it for me to prove, especially in that, like, prove I belong. I'm an athlete and I'm capable of being an elite athlete, not just a recreational athlete and had to prove it to myself. Like what my biggest inspiration is like that little girl, the seven-year-old me or that seven-year-old boy or girl that is either had an accident or is just also born without legs or whatever their circumstances are to know like these, they can dream and they're like to see themselves, have a physical representation of themselves doing something and thriving. And that was really important for me to fulfill it or not fulfill it, but like- To be that example. To be that example. And just like, you know yeah. what? That means sleeping out of a car, sleeps out of my, I sleep out of my car. It's thankfully, it's a, it was yeah. great. I actually had a TV in my car. <laughs> the, the, the seals were all gone. So it was really drafty in Winter Park, Colorado because it was like really cold there. But I had a TV and I just watched, I, oh my God, Shrek way too many times. Because that was back when you had DVDs. It's a great movie. I would watch it, it multiple is. times if I could also. <laughs> um, one last question for you. you. You've both endured more in a lifetime than you know I'd wish on anyone. And you've accomplished more in a lifetime than most people would dream of. You're a really competitive person. And, and like you said, you once you start something, there's no option other than to finish it. What's next for you? Um, well, what's next is the, my memoir, The Hard Parts, is officially coming out. Oh my gosh, February 21st. And I am like, get to call myself an author now? Along, so cool. Oh my gosh, it's wild. But athletically, I'm not done. I love sports. I'll probably be that 60-year-old and you'll have to rip me out of the start line or Master Blaster, still training and racing. But Paris 2024 and Milan 2026 Winter Games are what's on the horizon, hopefully. And I would be amazing to end my athletic career in the LA 2028 games. I love it. Well, I'll be rooting you on. Oksana Masters, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thank you so much, Alex. When I first read about Oksana's story, it reminded me how resilient the human body is. But also after talking with Oksana, she is living proof that you don't have to be confined by your circumstances. What I appreciated most about my conversation with Oksana was how lighthearted and joyful her demeanor was, despite all the obstacles she's faced in her life. If you're someone who's looking for inspiration, just do a quick search for Oksana Masters, and you'll definitely find her story is one that will resonate with many people. It certainly resonated with me. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producers are Michaela Heck and Raymond Liu. Greg Jacobs is our video producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineer is Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. <laughs>